don't give it like a the podcast platform of the finalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, Economization of Life, Part 1, Biopolitical Feminism, with Michelle Murphy. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Michelle Murphy, who is a techno-science studies scholar and a historian of the recent past. Uh, she's also a professor uh, in the Women and Gender Studies at the uh, University of Toronto, uh, as well as the organizer of the Techno Science Salons that happens every every month here in Toronto. Uh, hello, Michelle. Hello. Uh, that's that's how short we can have your your your, your <laughs> little bio, but actually there's many many other things we could say and uh, uh, a few a few books here and there that we we're going to talk about today. So it will it will come in. Uh, so today we're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about uh, something that, if I use your own words, which are which is the title of the introduction of your book, "Seizing the Means of Reproduction: uh, Feminism in Slash as Biopolitics." Uh, and uh, maybe the very first thing we need to do is because of uh, for many of the, our listeners, because the terms of biopolitics will be uh, extremely obvious and, uh, and uh, a field of research they are familiar with, but maybe for some others uh, a bit less. So in order to have everybody on track, uh, maybe we can start by uh, introducing, introducing their, the concept of uh, biopolitics. Um, I have a little quote I'll probably read uh, uh, very soon for, by uh, Michel Foucault, but uh, well, may, maybe I will let you introduce the very concept to begin with. Okay, uh, well thank you for inviting me <laughs> to do you. this podcast. Um, I'm happy to talk about biopolitics. Um, so biopolitics is a concept most um, associated with Michel Foucault, um, and we could describe it as the um, techniques and practices for the governing of life. Um, so Foucault was very interested in the practices, the emergence of practices and techniques for governing bodies and populations. Um, I tend to like to be a bit more um, unfaithful to Foucault than some users of the term biopolitics. So rather than feeling like um, bodies and populations is the most important interest of the techniques and practices for governing life, I think it's an open question. So what, what are the forms of life mm. that exist? So we can have ecologies, right? We can have micrological forms of life, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, we can think about economies. You know, we can think about all sorts of figures of aggregate life that aren't necessarily population. So I would say in this kind of large definition, if you take Foucault's definition, it really focuses on the emergence of population and bodies as kind of the targets of governance and things that become explicitly politicized beginning in the, the 18th century. But I think it's, I would rather ask questions about it and think, mm -hmm. like, what counts as life in different moments, right? We can think about the techniques and practices of racialization, mm -hmm. right, as part of biopolitics. So that would be a kind of one way in to thinking about biopolitics. Mm -hmm. 
and, and maybe something we can th we could say about uh, the concept itself is that it needs to be put into historical perspective in in the fact that uh, before uh, before the modern era, uh, I mean uh, around, around the 18th century, uh, Foucault describes the, the mode of sovereignty as being fundamentally different from this mm -hmm. kind of organization and politici politicization of life as being much more. Uh, I would almost say straightforward, but maybe that's that's a little bit simplest to say. But in in the fact that the sovereign would dispose of their the would dispose of life and death of of, of uh, his or her subjects, uh, and and so the biopolitical regime would be a little bit more uh, uh, complex in the way it's organized around this notion of life. And so so I mean, yeah, this concept is about forty years old. So there's, there's been many research since then that have been uh, challenging their the funding of uh, the funding of this concept, and uh, mm -hmm. that's something we're going to do today. But maybe just to to go back to this quote by Foucault, because I think it's very interesting in how uh, uh, it does consider simultaneously uh, the, the kind of individualized uh, unit of the body and the more uh, multitude uh, uh, scale of the population together. Um, so here I'm going to quote from Foucault in his uh, in his course at the Collège de France. Uh, right of death and power of a life, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and so he talks about sex as a political uh, as a politi as a p political issue uh, within this bi biopolitical uh, regime, and he says, and I quote: "On the one hand, it was tied to the disciplines of the body, the harnessing, intensification, and distribution of forces, the adjustment and economy of energies." On the other hand, it was applied to the regulation of population through all the all the far-reaching effects of its, of its activity. Sorry, it fitted in both categories at once, giving rise to infinitesimal surveillances, permanent controls, extremely meticulous ordering of space, indeterminate medical or psychological examinations to an entire micropower concerned with the body. But it gave rise as well to comprehensive measures, statistical assessment, and intervention aim, aimed at the entire social body or at groups taken as a whole. So we we really have the tension between those two uh, those two uh, corporal units, so to speak, and and so this being this being based, we're going to be able to now completely dive into your own work, uh, uh, Michel. And uh, and uh, maybe uh, I should ask you about um, uh, this this concept that gives the title to one of your essay, that is uh, the economization of life that uh, we would make accessible on the page of the podcast. Um, but this uh, this notion that life become that that there is an economy of life that uh, that is uh, involved within this biopolitical bio form of sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about it? Sure. Well, maybe I can take off from from your comment. So, you know, if Foucault, uh, if we kind of we can make a, a straightforward um, summary of Foucault's claims and kind of uh, leave some of the nuance um, for later. But you know, if we uh, if we uh, say that Foucault is tracking a change from sovereign forms of power in which <clears throat> sovereign power decided whether you live or die. And then the emergence of a biopolitical forms of power, the exercise of power which takes not just whether you live or die 
into account, but the actual forms of life itself, interested in fostering life, shaping life, controlling life, intervening in life and living beings. So it's no more whether, but how. So how do you that, live a life? And so how do you live a day? Exactly, yeah. and then, but then, of course, death does not go away. As other scholars, like we can look at um, uh, Mbembe and his work on necropolitics, importantly reminds us that. Um, and but we can find this in Foucault, where he looks at the kind of emergence of what we could call a biopolitical equation, um, in which um, some must die so that others might live. And we can think of this as the equation of genocide. We can think of this as the equation of eugenics, um, for which you have a population and you know some must uh, die or be abandoned uh, for the sake of um, the aggregate and its improvement. Right. So that kind of logic, that kind of equation, or that kind of statement or grammar is something that um, Foucault points out, and particularly it becomes what he calls like the, lo the logic of the racial state, right? And we can think of it in terms of the logic of racial genocide. So, you know, what, what bodies must be purged um, from the population so that the uh, population will be more fit or more abundant, etc. And so in my work on the economization of life, I'm um, looking at this moment um, that, um, that kind of really crystallizes in the mid-20th century uh, after explicit eugenics, after um, the period of uh, um, where genocide is underwritten by claims to racial biological difference. And um, looking at in the mid-20th century when uh, different kinds of logics come into play or are uh, ma made manifest in which um, it becomes acceptable to talk about more valuable and, le and less valuable life in economic terms rather than racialized biological terms. And so we can go back to Foucault's equation of some must die so that others might live and we can find this, I would say, in uh, mid-20th century population control. Some must not be born so that future others will live more abundantly, consumptively, productively in, a, in the logics of macroeconomy in nation states. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in looking at how um, some of these biopolitical practices that crystallized around racialization and particularly uh, formations of claims of biological racial difference have been transformed into acceptable ways of talking about more and less valuable life but through instead of uh, uh, instead of appeals to biological difference it's appeals to uh, economic value mm -hmm. so that's really at the heart of this project the economization of life mm. Would you say that I understand well this uh, paradigm of this change of paradigm uh, of um, if I if I say that we went from a principle of essences and who who is considered as human who is not considered as human and I mean within the colonial project mm -hmm. uh, and uh, was that something we've been particularly seeing uh, to uh, problems of uh, intensities and who is more worth living well to who is less i mean the, somehow we 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 go from from very uh, essential categories to mm -hmm. more 
uh, questions of degrees that are attributed to each body. Is that is that mm -hmm. correct? Yeah, that's really. I mean, that's a great way to think about it. Um, I think also the figures, the kind what we could call the the figures of aggregate life, that are at stake shift. Mm. So of, so I'm I'm not at all claiming that racialization is uh, is less pervasive as um, uh, in the exercise of power in the contemporary, but it takes slightly different form. And so in the early 20th century, with uh, population is so coded with notions of racial difference, right? Even if that racial difference is understood not strictly as an essential kind, it could be understood as a, a population filled with variation in evolution that needs to be managed in evolutionary time. So sometimes, you know, those versions of biological race can be filled with difference, right? And aren't just kind of we uh, stereotypes of essential different kinds. Mm -hmm. um, but still, we can look at the shift from thinking of the nation state as a container of racial difference mm -hmm. to the nation state as a container of the macro economy, right? And, we can, and so that the principal uh, job of the nation state is to govern its macro economy. Mm -hmm. And so once that happens, um, then the status of bodies relative to that project changes and new kinds of ways of um, acceptably talking about uh, worth and value emerge. So there's something important about a shift between race and po a rate of kind of explicitly raced population and a shift to then something like the macro economy and GDP um, as its kind of like greatest signifier mm -hmm. or we could say um, you know, this powerful fetish that we're all asked to like feed and, and sacrifice and worship at the author at the altar of, you know, all the things we're asked to do in order to like feed the maw of GDP. Mm -hmm. and so how do we get to that? <laughs> um, actually, to, to make a first bridge with a, a podcast I already had in the past with uh, Olivia Ann, um, we talked about how... Um, the suburban project uh, in, in the United States was very much her, uh, a sort of militarized strategy uh, of, of, um, of occupation of space in the context of the Cold War, mm -hmm. and uh, which, which was maybe my way of, of entering into this topic, but her, her own research, which I, I, I did not really thought about before uh, she told me about it, is, is to, was to think the suburban, suburb, suburban house as a, a sort of... Uh, uh, gender constructing uh, architecture uh, uh, targeted uh, at, at the female body and how uh, and where we kind of came together is in in, in their in the observing this um, this uh, paradigmatic object of their of uh, this era which is a contraceptive pill which you've been writing uh, you've been writing uh, quite a quite a lot about as well so um, mm -hmm. uh, um, could you, could you maybe tell us how, uh, how I mean, that's something, as I said, we kind of already discussed, but I think it'd be, it'd be great to have it very well articulated by you in how it is a part of a, of, a, of a strategy of control of populations, but also at, at every level, not just as a demographics uh, dimension, but also in a, in a, in a kind of heteronormative uh, vision of, of, uh, of the given population. And, uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot to say there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so <laughs> to make to kind of make the connection then back to what we were talking about, 
And one of the things I'm trying to figure out in tracking the economization of life is the important place of sex and reproduction and gender embodiment or sexed living being inside of this history of capitalism. And um, in, let's say, but in Marxist feminist thought in the 1970s and 1980s, um, the relationship between sex life and reproduction and capital was most predominantly thought of in terms of unwaged care work. So thinking about how women's labor um, and their work in reproduction is unvalued, unwaged, um, and is kind of given, is both uh, under rights capitalism, but is taken for free and not uh, remunerated. Right by capital, um, and so this this is kind of a dominant way of thinking the relationship between reproduction and capital is that which is kind of undervalued, and what I'm trying to say is that well I think something else is happening mm -hmm. with sex living being in this very same moment when these Marxist when Marxist feminists were making this argument yes it's true that reproductive uh, labor was undervalued in unwaged and that remains the case but that's not I think the sum of uh, of the story for understanding the relationship between capital and reproduction so um, in this very same moment in the 1970s and 1980s we see particularly underwritten by projects of American empire the spread of family planning projects and population control projects for the sake not of liberating women, but for the sake of reducing population in order to get better mathematical uh, uh, mathematical metrics of mm -hmm. GDP, right? The reducing population has a direct effect on GDP per capita, which becomes the way of comparing macroeconomies. And, so, um, and so in this moment, I would say it's, it's an explosion of interest in reproduction and sex living being as targets of governance for the sake of capital. And we can look at that history in terms of things like the spread, of course, of sterilization um, and uh, all sorts of practices of experiment and um, uh, without informed consent, etc. But I'm also, I'm really interested in looking at this, the, the spread of what we could call the best practices um, in American empire of family planning, mm -hmm. which sought to um, uh, create the conditions in which women would choose to uh, reduce their own fertility. And those projects were typically done with contraceptive pills rather than, let's say, IUDs or sterilization. Right. So in those projects, the space between mm, the biopolitical question of being governed, having your sex living, being your fertility or reproduction governed, and the project of becoming a consumer subject, right, is mm. that threshold collapses. So the practices that it used are really the practices of marketing, of motivation, it's the birth of what we call social marketing in, pub in international public health. Um, it's a testing ground for what for the practices of neoliberalism for responsibilizing subjects to for the sake of the macroeconomy in their own bodies. 
Um, so I so through that kind of history and looking at the pill as one example, but there's others um, as a kind of uh, a project in American empire. Um, uh, I I really want to try to ask questions um, that that go beyond um, how was reproduction controlled to questions about how did sex living being come to be pivotal to the history of the governing of capital. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. And actually, I have a quote from you here from the, your book, um, Seizing the, the Means of Reproduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's it's just one sentence, but it's it's a quite a long one. But I th- I think it it really encompasses all those uh, all those problems. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read it here, mm-hmm. uh, which is strange maybe that I, I read your own quote, but okay, <laughs> let's let's do it. Uh, uh, so I quote. It's probably more coherent than what I just said. So <laughs> um, I I don't know. I think I, I think we'll it see. will it will maybe do a, a good synthesis for it. So here I quote. Reproduction was not a biological thing with clear bounds, but a multifaceted and distributed effect in time and space, a problem both material and political, to which questions of state, race, freedom, individuality, and economic prosperity were bound in ways that connected the micrological with the transnational via embodiment. So, good synthesis. (laughs) Yeah, and I guess that relates to another kind of question I'm trying to ask, which is, why do we think we know what reproduction is? Mm. Right? There's, I mean, you know, behind you is a whole shelf of, you know, a hundred books on reproductive politics. Reproductive politics is a cornerstone of feminist politics. But why, what is reproduction? Right? Why do we think we know what reproduction Mm. is? We can look, on the one hand, at recent work in technoscience studies, which shows that, you know, uh, incredible rearrangements of reproduction um, at the micrological level. Right, we can look at the explicit emergence of biocapital, right, and the ways in which the animating and recombinatory and uh, generative capacities of cells and um, viruses and um, tissues become forms of biocapital, right. Um, and so we could, so we can look at, the, at that as kind of something that's really destabilized reproduction for us as a category. But I think we can even think other thoughts. Like if we look historically, the 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 sense that reproduction is something that happens in bodies, mm. and we govern it by things like you know uh, by practices of um, protecting individuals' rights to have bodily integrity, that is a really historically new way of thinking about reproduction. To think about reproduction as predominantly childbirth in bodies is historically new. It really dates to around the 1980s. Before that, you wouldn't use the word reproduction. You might use the word fertility. And then, um, so reproduction used in that way is, is, is quite new. And it kind of forgets, I think, this whole bigger history of reproduction we can go back to its emergence as a term in the 18th century to think about it, right? Where reproduction was not something that happened in bodies, but it's something that happened in aggregates, mm-hmm. right? So Buffon, the comparative and the French comparative anatomist, brought reproduction as a term um, into biology. Before, in the 18th century, you would talk about generation, like the capacity of organisms to replace themselves, 
you'd call that generation. But Buffon used the word reproduction to talk about the way species are able to kind of maintain their similarity and moreness, right? Their increase over time at the at the level of the species or the aggregate form of life. Um, we can look at Marx and think about um, the relations of reproduction rather than reproduction as something that happens in bodies. We can think about the relations that make some things repeat in time, right? That create, that increase some things, mm-hmm. right? And abandon others. Mm. And so this question about what counts as reproduction, we can look at uh, Donna Haraway and her question about why should our bodies end at our skins, right? So, uh, so this is a question for me, like, what counts as reproduction? What, you know, how, what's at stake in taking on what we can call the ontological politics of what counts as reproduction? And so that's an, another question that I have. Um, in this, maybe another way to think about it, in the same way that in critical race studies, we talk about uh, racialization, and we talk about race not as something in bodies, right, but as um, uh, systems of relation that orient bodies, mm-hmm. right, that orient the world. In, in a similar way, I think we, I'm interested in talking about reproduction in this kind of distributed form as relations of reproduction rather than something that happens in bodies. And so then we can ask questions about like in different moments of time, different historical moments and different geopolitical moments, what are the kind of objects that reproduction comes to be populated with? Um, So, yeah, so I think that is one of the, the kind of further kind of questions that comes out of thinking, not just thinking about reproduction as a multitude Right, or something that lots of different politics converge on or lots of different biopolitical formations confer- con- converge on. But also this question, what counts as, po- as reproduction and for whom? And as the critical scholar, what's the intervention into how we kind of map or how mm-hmm. we uh, um, materialize what counts as reproduction? Mm-hmm. Well, and as we say, uh, you are an historian of the recent past, but I, I would almost argue you're you're an historian of the present. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, one thing you've been uh, you've been particularly looking at uh, within this uh, uh, economic economization of life and how somehow uh, governmental projects of uh, control of populations and control of demographics uh, uh, um, joins uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, the. F- financialization of the world and, mm-hmm. and capitalism and and you you came up with a with a, what I would like to call a, a concept because I think it is one but um, a concept called the girl with the the and girl uh, capital letters of uh, 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 to, to really yeah con- conceptualize what what we're looking at through this uh, this concept of the girl uh, and um, and you're you're arguing that uh, 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 the girl is the new subject of uh, uh, of uh, capitalist investment and uh, uh, with uh, with uh, an entire imaginary that comes with it. And uh, I think in the in the article that you wrote uh, you you wrote in particular about it, even though I I found in a few texts that you've mm-hmm. been writing about it, um, you you're looking for example at this. Um, at these commercials that the Nike Foundation has been doing, uh, that uh, in a very uh, in such an aggressive way that because uh, each each image is uh, lasts for about half a second, so it's almost subliminal as a as a way of, mm-hmm. of graphic design. 
uh, how ne the Nike Foundation is uh, enjoining you to uh, invest into the girl in such a way that it's 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 pretty interesting how at the at the end of it is it's it's kind of completely uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, revealing revealing uh, what it stands for because it's it's a one once you have like you invested in the girl and like she she made her her little uh, uh, pictorial village uh, 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 fantasized village uh, um, uh, uh, grew economically and prosper and everything. The, the message that the Nike Foundation has for you at the end of it is you have changed the course of history. So it's <laughs> it's quite interesting in how the narrative wants the girl to, to the girl to to mm -hmm. to be the, the subject of it. But no, it's you who've been investing in it that that actually have changed the world. So uh, anyway, I, I, I thought that it was an interesting, uh, almost a, a commercial slip up to some degree, but. Uh, I actually don't think it's a slip up. I yeah. think it's very structural. You see it over in other campaigns, like um, another uh, girl campaign is by the um, nonprofit Plan, which is you know a very prominent transnational NGO that does development work, and they have um, the Because I'm a Girl campaign, mm. and um, again, it's the same kind of campaign. That um, you know, if you invest in a girl's education, um, in basically in the elementary education, then you see all these returns on that investment. The first return is lower fertility, again related to GDP. The second return is like higher wages. Uh, you know, the third return is more investment into the community, and it goes on and on. They spin out all these correlative positives that then lead to like. Uh, the solution to world financial crisis. Um, so, you know, all you have to do is invest, you know, $30 uh, in a girl and the world is transformed. Um, this, this fantasy. So plan is part of this because I'm a girl campaign. And again, all these correlations are deeply gendered, right? It's because they're girled that they happen. It's because they're girled that they're compliant and, and, and that these correlation, correlations work out um, but part of that campaign is um, is also has this other rubric of it just takes one. One girl, when she's invested in, changes her whole village, but also you could be the one. You could be the one to invest in, in the girl, right? And so actually people, donors, are asked to put their face inside of circles that are like, that in the larger campaign are kind of animated data points that represent the girls you're investing in and their rates of return, but also you become one of those agential data points to be the girl who invests in mm. the girl, and you put your face in the in the circle yeah. of the so, data point. So it's, it's a very conscious kind of mm -hmm. interpolation or calling you into um, a financial financialization of your feminism. Yeah. So the girl become a, a becomes a sort of a vessel for your own. For your own uh, little face on there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, you you join her as a data point. Yeah. Um, but you are the investor rather than the investee in that relation. Uh, but so so that's that's very much part of a of a current campaign, right? Of investments that's that's uh, that has been happening. Right? Uh, yeah. So in that in that work, I'm trying to look at the emergence of hum uh, what happens when family planning, which was overwhelmingly the kind of 
um, biggest uh, gendered investment of um, development in the 1970s and the 1980s gets replaced by something else, right? When Bush comes, when, you know, well, we can begin with Reagan, but particularly with Bush, you know, all that kind of funding for uh, transnational family planning um, withered. And um, instead, we see we saw the rise of human capital logic. So instead of directly investing in family planning, the argument is it's cheaper to invest in education, and you get the same returns on reduced fertility as if you directly bought contraceptives. It's cheaper to educate to reduce birth than it is to give birth control. Mm -hmm. So once you have that calculation, which is actually Lawrence Summers was... Um, uh, chief economist of the World Bank and was the one who delivered that calculation um, as kind of world uh, to kind of start this human capital turn at the World Bank in the early 90s. Um, then the the girl becomes a kind of prototypical figure of human capital. She is described as the best investment in the developing world. She gives the highest rates of return. So it's kind of the statistical invention of this thing, the girl, that you can find all over the world that um, gives a particular rates of return. Goldman Sachs, um, not so long ago, did its own market report on the investability of girls. And again, mm -hmm. had this kind of finding, but with a, you know, its typical disclaimer, you know, when it does any kind of analysis of stocks, of course, these are speculative uh, claims about the actual rates of return on girls. And it was quite uh, amazing to see that whole format in there, like us, you know, um, stock forecast, uh, disclaimer accompanying their analysis of the investability of girls. And of course Hillary Clinton. This is really related to Hillary Clinton feminism. And uh, when she was um, head of the Department of State, they started a project about um, investing in girls. It was right on the front page of the, the Department of State. And she directly links it to the war against terrorism. And so um, we know where, she, where the, you know the argument is that by investing in girls, we reduce, um, uh, uh, we stabilize regions, and we reduce terrorism. Mm -hmm. But there's always this kind of um, shell game there between the figure of the savable, the girl, the kind of the girl, the brown, often Muslim, poor girl who needs rescue, next to the dangerous. Uh, brown Muslim boy who could be the potential terrorist. So these kind of mm -hmm. figures play one against the, the other in the contemporary. So it becomes a really uh, uh, pervasive form of, I would say, imperial feminism in the contemporary uh, that has come to replace family planning. Um, so you can see that that kind of story, there's, I think, other stories too to tell about the way through the, the girl um, gender becomes part of the atmosphere of capital, right? So we can think about ma macroeconomy and its invention in the early 20th century, its crystallization as GDP, as um, a kind of invention of a kind of atmosphere for materializing capital in the container of the nation state, mm -hmm. right? And uh, and then this atmosphere, this economic atmosphere that we've come to really, I think, palpably feel ourselves to live in, um, has all sorts of correlative relations in it, like gender. So gender um, or attitude can become, become these kind of targets of, um, to be intervened in or altered, right, to change the atmosphere of capital. 
So again, investing in the girl is not just because it gives uh, reduces fertility and gives maybe a, 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 a different kind of wage laborer, but also this idea that changing the gender relations are also correlated with uh, it, 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 changing the gender relations in the economic atmosphere are also correlated with higher GDP and higher rates of return. Mm -hmm. So gender itself becomes part of capital's atmosphere. Mm. You're, you're giving me a fantastic bridge for the, for the next topic, but actually I'm not going to take it immediately <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, with this notion of atmosphere. But um, uh, right before that, I, I also wanted to point out to, to make another bridge mm -hmm. toward another podcast, the very first one that got published with uh, Mimi T. and Nguyen, uh, uh, about um, pre precisely, I mean, it, uh, a, li a little bit before uh, Hillary Clinton, but uh, and at different uh, different uh, uh, positions in the in the U.S. government, but uh, someone like Laura Bush, uh, uh, so George Bush Jr.'s wife, was uh, was particularly instrumental in the narrative of 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 this uh, uh, of this is a little there are little brown girls that needs to be saved from their. Uh, 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 brown uh, misogynistic equivalent uh, 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 males, uh, uh, terrorists, Muslims, everything you want. Uh, um, and obviously, within this equation, you need some white bodies to protect uh, to protect one against the other. So, uh, and and so so with Mimi and I talked uh, about an article she wrote about this uh, uh, school of beauty in Kabul that that has been created. Uh, uh, Along the along the American invasion of Afghanistan, and um, uh, and so as as a as a as a way to to give uh, what what maybe we would call the, the gift the, the gift of uh, uh, of freedom. I mean the the gift of beauty to to this uh, to those uh, women that um, uh, to to those girl to the to the girl that's a, that's her again that uh, deserve uh, the Western standards of beauty. Um, so I think that's, a, that's an interesting bridge for this conversation. I, I don't know if you want to mm -hmm. react to it or... Yeah, well, I used to, when I, when I first started working on The Girl, I would start with actually a recording of Laura Bush's mm. um, radio address at Thanksgiving right um, before the um, invasion of Afghanistan, where you know, it was one of the very few times where sh she spoke publicly and uh, called for the you know the invasion in the name of you know saving girls mm -hmm. and protecting them, um, and uh, and that moment um, is an incredibly disturbing moment. Uh, you know, I also um, at that time I was following the work of uh, an organization called the Feminist Majority, who um, did a uh, a project where they sent what they called burqa swatches. So uh, fabric swatches from burqas to um, state, uh, to the senators and congressmen, uh, so that they would be reminded to um, think about saving women mm -hmm. and questions of gender equality during their decisions about invasion. Um, so this incredible... Uh, um, storm of feminism, imperialism, and militarization that kind of was right in our face in that moment 
um, is part of the story of the girl, but I think it's also part of the story of the economization of life. So when the American government uh, first decided to you know, found an office of population in USAID and fund uh, family planning transnationally, uh, they did so following what was called the Draper Report. And the Draper Report was a report written by uh, a U.S. general and uh, about um, military uh, funding. It was not a report about family planning at all. It was about uh, military the support of um, uh, basically as a it was a as a report about how the U.S. would fund other militaries in allied states to help fight communism. And the report said it's not enough to give uh, you know our our allies um, you know funds for weapons. They need funds for economic development and they need funds for family planning because um, family planning and population explosion, so this report said, was the greatest danger um, in the face of the communist offensive, right? And so from the very beginning, the investment in transnational family planning was, came out of a military logic. Mm -hmm. It was part of a securitization in the Cold War. Um, and so that, uh, so this, this kind of Laura Bush moment has that kind of continuity as well as obviously to continuities to colonial projects, right, of saving, um, that, you know, justify colonialism for saving some subjects. So we could say that it, it relates to Fanon's analysis of the logic of public health, mm -hmm. right, where, um, you know, to, to allow oneself to be served by a public health project of the occupier and the invader uh, in, puts one at risk of allowing the occupier to say, see, you're, we're justified for being here because we're bringing a benefit, mm -hmm. right? And, and Hans Fanon was talking about Algeria in particular. Exactly, um, and his, 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 his work in Algeria. Um, and, and, you know, he wrestled with the question of could public health be part of an uh, anti-colonial project or not, right? Um, and that was a, an important question for him as a doctor and a psychiatrist mm -hmm. who had a clinical practice. I mean, people often read The Wretched of the Earth and um, pay attention to the first part, um, which has those, you know, famous political statements about, uh, you know, um, decolonization and kind of don't notice that the whole second half is case histories from his psychiatric practice. So this, this kind of question of the imprecation of um, whether you take biopolitics and anti-colonialism or biopolitics and colonialism or biopolitics and what we could call neo-colonialism or whatever you want to call this moment, um, neoliberal imperialism. Mm -hmm. um, and so the girl, I think, is one of the figures of this kind of neoliberal imperialism. But it's not just an imperial figure, it's also a nationalist figure. It's a figure that national uh, development projects um, also take on happily, mm -hmm. right? So it becomes a kind of complicated figure. And then, of course, all the money that goes into it, people can appropriate and do things with it, right? So, you know, people can do projects that don't aren't just... Um, uh, uh, don't just uh, 
duplicate this kind of logic with the money that flows in the name of the girl, mm -hmm. right, on the ground. Um, so, yeah, so I do see a direct attachment to what um, you were just talking about and Laura Bush and the invasion of Afghanistan and the history of the girl. But then when we look at its kind of most recent um, elaborations, so one of the things I'm interested in about the girl um, is the data politics of the girl. So the girl exists, like as a, what I call sometimes, as a phantasmogram. Mm -hmm. So I use the word phantasmogram to kind of think about the way that um, numbers and statistics and quantification practices become animated, become affectively charged. You know, so often, um, like even GDP, we all know GDP is like a kind of bullshit statistic, yet it has so much affective force, mm -hmm. right? So where does this kind of affective force that comes with numbers, you know, how does it work? What is the phantasma or the imaginaries that... Um, could say techno-scientific infrastructures bring into being and macroeconomy is one of them so thinking about that and and the girl the girl is really a figure of statistics it's a figure of correlations these kind of fantasies about what investing in the girl brings about are mathematical correlative claims that come out of decades of feminist research about family planning and development but the the um, organization that's been crunching the numbers the and producing the kind of beautiful data visualizations for Nike and for the UN is a company called Maplecroft. And Maplecroft is a kind of a new era risk analysis company. And their specialty is um, in what they call preemptive corporate responsibility. So preemptive corporate responsibility is the idea that uh, this is how you know Maplecroft would describe it. Um, you know, when companies go into places that are high growth of GDP but are filled with risks, right? Um, so, uh, how can they develop philanthropic projects that are about changing the atmosphere of risks that their operations work in? So, the Girl Project is an example of preemptive corporate responsibility changing the atmosphere of risks that a corporate operation like Nike operates in by altering gender, right? And you can, you know, another example that Maplecroft gives is, let's say you're, um, you know, a courier company and you're making a uh, operations in Southern Africa. Um, they will do an analysis for you that shows what are the, the biggest risks to your operations. Well, the biggest risks to your operations are... Um, truck driver is getting sick. Um, so we need to have a system of support clinics along the highways so that truck drivers can access medical services, for example. And the idea is that your corporate responsibility intervenes in your milieu, right, so that your operations become less risky. Mm -hmm. And the girl, and so this, the, the Maplecroft sees this work on the girls being kind of the pinnacle of this project. And they offer just all sorts of dashboards that are kind of the alternative to, let's say, the UN Millennium De Development Goal dashboards, you know, where they have dashboards about gender equality or dashboards about, like, clean water, all these measures, right, mm -hmm. for they can, so they can track development goals. Their dashboards are for things like um, consumer potential, like the potential of subjects to become consumers 
or um, you know the terrorist dashboard, right? Uh, and they'll have it. They'll drill down to the level of neighborhoods and cities uh, around the world and give you kind of risk analysis for your operations about kind of terrorist potential in different neighborhoods. And so this is the kind of phantasmic world that the girl is being calculated in. So that's another kind of side to the story. It's not just the military logics of invasion, but I think it's also in way, the way capital dreams itself. Mm -hmm. End of part one.